Thank you, Clark. Actually, the new version is out uh, just this past week, and it is now called It's Even Worse Than It Was. So, and as I tell people, uh, if there is an, another volume down the road, it will likely be called Run For Your Lives. <laughs> so my friend Fusina asked me this morning why I'm here on this beautiful Sunday morning, and I said uh, that uh, the way things are going, I like to go into houses of worship as often as I can, <laughs> pray that we don't end up with the worst. Uh, it's an ugly season in a whole host of ways. I was in uh, Wisconsin last week before the primary, and uh, as I do whenever I travel, I flip on the TV to a local station uh, just to see what they're getting. And it was wall-to-wall-to-wall commercials. Uh, Trump, Cruz, uh, Sanders, and then all the Super PAC ads. And I did something that I thought I would never, ever do which is I yelled at the television set, please give me a Geico commercial. That's how bad it was. Of course, uh, our political world has changed since uh, Donald Trump threw his hair into the ring uh, last year. And uh, I think the question I get more often than any other is uh, this deep concern, what would happen if Donald Trump actually got elected president? And my answer is, don't worry too much. Within a couple of months, he'd leave us for a younger country. So. <laughs> of course, he's not the only candidate. Uh, there's Ted Cruz, and there I get asked all the time, uh, why do people take such an instant dislike to Ted Cruz? Uh, the answer, of course, is it saves time. Uh, <laughs> And I will tell you parenthetically that in uh, now almost 50 years of kicking around uh, the Senate, um, and there are a lot of uh, senators who are uh, not well-liked by their colleagues uh, who are uh, the skunks at the garden party, as it were. I've never seen anything like the level of distaste for Cruz among his colleagues. And he now has uh, two endorsements from his colleagues. One from Mike Lee, who is uh, the closest to him ideologically from Utah, and uh, the other from Lindsey Graham, which was the ringing endorsement that started with uh, Lindsey saying that the choice between Cruz and Trump is like the choice between being poisoned and being shot, and he chose poisoning, apparently. And then he said, I'm endorsing Ted because I'd rather lose with Cruz than with Trump. So that's the kind of endorsements that he gets. Bernie Sanders, of course, has become the phenomenon of our time, uh, raising tons of money and with all uh, of these uh, ardent supporters, uh, shaking hands with the Pope yesterday. And uh, Ben and Jerry's now has a new ice cream named after him. Uh, it's uh, $3.99 a pint, and the taxes are $200 million. <laughs> and the... They're up in New York, uh, and of course, uh, Bernie uh, stumbled a little bit when he talked about the subway tokens, uh, uh, showing that he hadn't lived there quite some time. And then Hillary tried to one-up him by going on the subway and had to swipe her card five times. And I watched that uh, live, and I thought, uh, how many swipes before the crowd goes from, ooh, it's Hillary, to move it, lady. And, <laughs> Took two and a half. Uh, <laughs> as, uh, 
Yes, that's New York values, yes. Um, I do, uh, we've been through a lot of candidates. Uh, I lament uh, some of them. There was Jeb Bush, of course, uh, who we'd had Bush 41 and Bush 43, trying to be Bush 45, as they say in the family, no child left behind. (laughs) And that's apparently gone in every respect. Uh, There was uh, Ben Carson, whose slogan could have been, no child left awake. There's actually talk of him as a running mate for uh, Trump, and I thought he would be an ideal vice president, low energy. Uh, uh, There was uh, Rand Paul, uh, who's actually back doing some quite insightful commentary, I've noticed. And Rand uh, Paul ran, of course, as a kind of libertarian in the tradition of his father, uh, Ron, who's for legalizing prostitution, legalizing drugs. And I was so sad when he left, because I just wanted to be at the victory party. And then there's poor Lincoln Chafee, uh, who tried to be the alternative uh, before uh, Bernie Sanders uh, pretty much beat him out. And, of course, Bernie has the slogan, feel the burn. When Link tried, feel the chafe. (laughs) It worked with some senior citizens, but not... (laughs) Who could identify? So I like to get you laughing, because uh, it's all downhill uh, from this point on. So let me spend a few minutes talking about the larger uh, political landscape and uh, then reflect a little bit on where we might go and some of the things that we all ought to think about uh, as uh, people who care about the future of the country uh, and as I think almost everybody here is a, a citizen of faith. Uh, first. Just two phrases uh, that I would say keep in mind about the dynamics of our politics. Angry populism and partisan tribalism. Uh, And they interact in uh, sometimes quite corrosive ways. So the angry populism is a pretty obvious uh, artifact uh, right now of the financial collapse in the fall of 2008. Uh, And it's the sort of thing that actually is built Uh, embedded really pretty deeply in the DNA of the country. Uh, Populism, uh, at least in the sense of, even if you go back to the framers, this suspicion of power, uh, of people in power, a belief that power corrupts and uh, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've seen it emerge in different ways. And, you know, the variations uh, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, which usually uh, flare whenever there's a difficult economic time, uh, almost always includes some combination of nativism, protectionism, and isolationism. Uh, And uh, they can be mild and they can be severe. If you go back to the last time uh, that we had uh, fairly severe populism, it was really the late 1980s and early 1990s. We didn't have a deep recession or uh, anything close to a depression, but we had a sluggish economy for a number of years. And what triggered the populism as much as anything was uh, what you could fairly call a conspiracy of elites, in this case to enact a pay raise for members of Congress, judges, and cabinet officers and other top executive officials. Uh, Back then, we used to have something called the Quadrennial Commission. For all I know, there might be somebody in the room who was a member of one of those Quadrennial Commissions because they included the real elites. They were CEOs, uh, they were uh, uh, top scholars, they were religious leaders, 
and they would get together every four years and try to evaluate what should be done with the pay for top people in government. Now, uh, what they decided in late 1988 in their report was that because the members of Congress and judges and others had not had an increase in a decade and inflation had eroded their incomes, uh, and we were at that point facing uh, what was a potential crisis in the judiciary. It was getting more difficult to find people willing to do this. Uh, that was at least one of the major impetuses. And Congress had set it up so that judges weren't going to get any pay increase unless they got a pay increase, which meant no increases. So the commission recommended a 25% increase, which over a 10-year period wasn't really that much compounded uh, just to make up for inflation. Uh, well, Ronald Reagan, the outgoing president, uh, worked with George Herbert Walker Bush, the incoming president, and the leaders of both parties in Congress and the, the uh, heads of the judiciary and uh, the uh, chief justice and others to make this happen. And there was an explosion of anger out around the country. As most Americans said, you know, they're making $87,500 a year and complaining that they're not getting by. If I'm lucky, I get a 1% COLA, and they're getting 25%. And at the same time, we had uh, a, a uh, series of scandals around Congress, the House Bank and other things, the post office that got people angry. Polls showed that a majority of Americans thought that members of Congress lived in mansions with liveried servants, drove in limousines, uh, had a five-star restaurant where they got free meals in the Capitol, a world-class spa, and all kinds of other perks. And what we got was Ralph Nader on the left, Pat Buchanan on the right, and Ross Perot in the middle. Actually, I remember vividly uh, a, a very uncomfortable experience I had back then uh, CNN had as its most popular show, Crossfire, and I went on to defend a pay raise, and I was the uh, cream in the Oreo cookie between <laughs> Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader, who both were viciously critical, uh, using the same language, uh, and it was uh, and they're formidable debaters. So that was an unpleasant experience, but of course they all emerged on the presidential scene. And uh, Ross Perot, at this point in the 1992 presidential campaign, was leading in the campaign against uh, the putative Democratic nominee Bill Clinton and the incumbent president George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, Perot, within a couple of months, uh, demonstrated multiple times that his trade table was not in its full upright and locked position. <laughs> But he still ended up with 19% of the popular vote. So now fast forward, and we have the bailout in the fall of 2008, a conspiracy of elites. And we get George W. Bush, the president, and Hank Paulson, the treasury secretary, working in close concert with the leaders of both parties in Congress, with the support of the two presidential candidates, Barack Obama and John McCain, every uh, previous chairman of the Fed joining Ben Bernanke, 
all of the leaders of the financial community and the business community standing up and saying we've got to act and we've got to act now or we're going to fall into a global depression that will make the 30s uh, look like a picnic by comparison. And they pulled together a bailout package that failed in the House because House Republicans already in a populist mood uh, after the uh, uh, market collapse and other problems said, why should we trust you? And the Dow dropped over 700 points the next day, which was a big deal at the time. And they came back and uh, supported it uh, to uh, a, just an explosion of anger around the country that included the Occupy Wall Street movement on the populist left and the Tea Party movement on the right and the attitude of the vast majority of Americans, not with, uh, without uh, good reason, was... So you uh, politicians bailed out the miscreants who got us into this mess. Then let them take big bonuses. Uh, We lost our houses. Or if we didn't lose our houses, the one asset we had to protect our retirement and give to our kids, our homes, dropped to half the value. Uh, We lost our jobs. Or we got stuck in jobs because nobody could move to another job and the employer squeezed us. And we've seen, of course, the reverberations of that follow. And while the movements were different, uh, the Occupy movement basically, for the most part, occupied. You know, they moved tents across from Wall Street and found a few parks in different places and protested for a few weeks. And when the smells got too bad, they disbanded and didn't do very much. The Tea Party movement really organized and created candidates and moved forward but they're both very evident now and flexing their muscles, and that's where Bernie Sanders emerges uh, with a strength of a candidacy that one never would have predicted in advance. And it's also why on the Republican side, going back a year, every poll taken of Republicans, whether it's all of them or registered or the activist ones, showed 60 to 70% support for outsider or insurgent candidates people who'd never been in office before, never run for office before, had been in office but ran by poking their fingers in the eyes of uh, their leaders, uh, and uh, the more outrageous, the better, and only 20% support for insiders or establishment candidates. Um, I will tell you that back in August, I wrote a piece in The Atlantic called Why This Time Might Be Different, saying uh, that the conventional wisdom that all of this would fall to the wayside and they'd end up with an establishment figure they always do. You get these candidates like Herman Cain who emerge and they're the flavor of the day and then, of course, they collapse and they fall back on the John McCain's or the Mitt Romney's. wasn't necessarily going to happen this time and uh, that Trump and Cruz were the two to keep an eye on. And, of course, that's emerged. Now, you can't talk about this without also talking about the curious nature of partisan tribalism. Uh, Now, I use the term tribalism uh, and not polarization. Of course we have polarization. That's obvious and evident. As uh, my co-author Tom Mann and I point out in our book, uh, which, by the way, makes a great holiday gift. Uh, (laughs) Easter and Passover are right around the corner. For all your guests at the table, really. Uh, 
as we point out, the, the uh, polarization has been asymmetric. Uh, just to step back for a second, when I used to teach about Congress uh, in the classroom, I would say to my students in the 70s and 80s, uh, so imagine we took all members of Congress and put them on buses and drove a mile and a half due east of the Capitol and told them to go onto the field at RFK Stadium that used to be uh, the uh, home of the football team whose name shall go unmentioned, uh, and told them, place yourselves where your worldview, your general orientation would make you feel most comfortable. And we went up to the press box. We would look down on a visual representation of the bell curve, the normal distribution. The vast majority of the members congregated somewhere near the midfield stripe, a lot of admixture between the parties, uh, generally between the 40-yard lines. Do that today, or any time over the last uh, six, eight, or ten years, but do it with the 114th Congress, repaint those lines on the field. From the press box, we would see a barren midfield area. On one side, you'd see a few people around the 40, a whole lot around the 25 to 30-yard line, tailing off to smaller numbers as you move towards uh, the end of the field. On the other side, one or two people uh, around the 35 or 40-yard line, a whole lot uh, right around the goalpost and not a few floating in the Anacostia River uh, nearby. Uh, but polarization is not uh, enough to explain our political divisions because the fact is you can still have effective problem solving with polarization. Just consider the odd couple for many years in the Senate of Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, two people who couldn't have more disparate backgrounds or lifestyles, and uh, yet they had a deep and enduring friendship. And with that friendship, one anchored at the left end of his party, the other for most of his career anchored at the right end of his party, although Orrin now would be at the socialist end uh, of his party. But they gave us the Children's Health Insurance Program. They gave us criminal justice reform and a whole lot of other things because they figured out some areas where there wasn't really the ideological division, there was common ground, and then you could do some horse trading. And some of it would be, I'll give you this, you give me that. Others would be, I'll take a hit here, and I can justify it to my team because you're taking a hit there. Look at Henry Waxman. 40 years in the House of Representatives, retired uh, uh, just uh, over a year ago. Uh, from 1974 uh, to 2000, through 2014, a liberal. Henry wouldn't shrink from the term liberal, not in the center. And yet his fingerprints are all over every piece of health policy, environmental policy, tobacco, a whole host of other things. And he would tell you, that his biggest and proudest accomplishments came while Ronald Reagan was president because he had a little leverage. They had the majority in the House. Reagan had a lot of leverage, and they cut deals. And Henry figured, you know, I can get a quarter of a loaf of here, a tenth of a loaf there. Before long, I got a bakery, and it worked for him. But now we've gone beyond that. Tribalism has two qualities to it. The first is... If you're for it, I'm against it, even if I was for it yesterday. And the second is, you're not a worthy adversary, you're the enemy. You're trying to undermine the fundamental values of the country. Now, the second element of it has two components as well. 
One is the real and visceral distaste for people, some of which comes from not knowing them or not congregating with them. We now live in a world where people increasingly congregate with those who reinforce what they believe. Uh, The second is what we could call a ruthless pragmatism. And it is, if I can demonize them, uh, then I can gain political advantage. And that's become more significant in the era uh, that we call the permanent campaign. For many of you veterans uh, of Washington, uh, and I can see in the room some veterans of Washington, uh, you'll remember that back 30 or 40 years ago, we really did have seasons in the political world. There was a season of campaigning that lasted for maybe six months out of the two years, and they're vicious zero-sum games. Elections work that way. You want to win, you use the metaphors of war. There's a winner and a loser. There's nothing in between. And you want to win not just by a narrow margin, because if you win by a narrow margin, they're going to be back at you again the next time, and maybe with even more money. You want to crush your opponent into the dust so that they say, we don't want to run against this person. And then you'd move to a season of governing. The pollsters and the political consultants would fade away for 18 months because in our political system, the one the framers devised, it's an additive process. You need, first of all, in this extended republic uh, with people coming from widely disparate areas, you need to find coalitions. You need to work through debate and deliberation to reach that point. And you want to build a larger coalition because... The only way you can justify to a public changes in their lives that will disrupt them is if you can, with a broad leadership coalition, say, this is going to hurt, but it's really going to pay off for you and your uh, children down the road. Uh, Well, that's gone now. The political consultants and the pollsters dominate the process. The old legislative staff have faded away. And in the last uh, period of time, especially since The Republicans, after 40 years of wandering in the desert of the minority, were brought in 1994 to the promised land by uh, their leader, Newt Gingrich. We've had close contests, close divisions. Every election you can imagine the majorities change. I'll put that together with polarization, and it means that, you know, if we had gone 20 years ago from a Democratic to a Republican majority, and you'd gone from a Tip O'Neill on one 40-yard line to a Bob Michael on the other 40, it's a change but not a huge one. Now you're going from one goalpost to the other in terms of agenda setting and priorities, uh, and so the stakes are very high. And if you work with people on the other side, you might give them a little more traction. People might like them a little bit better. And at the margins, that might make a difference, and that could be the difference between winning and losing. So working with the other side becomes like sleeping with the enemy and finding ways to delegitimize what they're doing if they're in the majority can work to your advantage. Now take that ruthless pragmatism and look at what happened in 2009. And we know that after Democrats had won a sweeping victory in the 2008 elections, had a Democratic president coming in, robust majorities in both houses of Congress, We know that on inaugural eve, January 20th, 2009, while all across this town there were balls and celebrations and Democrats were dancing, Republicans were uh, not. But at the caucus room, a restaurant about a mile from here, there was a gathering of Republican leaders uh, 
who went into a dinner uh, led by the so-called young guns, Kevin McCarthy, Paul uh, Ryan, and Eric Cantor, but including Newt Gingrich, John Kyle, the number two leader in the Senate, and a number of others. And they went in demoralized, disillusioned, depressed, but came out with a dance, uh, a spring in their steps because they'd figured out what they were going to do. Ruthlessly, pragmatically, they were going to unite as a parliamentary minority and vote against everything that Barack Obama or the Democrats proposed, and then view all of the victories as illegitimate and frame them that way, and block as much as they could, make the whole process look messy, and go out around the country and activate that populist anger of the Tea Party movement. Uh, and it worked like a charm. Now, I can tell you the first thing that came up within weeks was the stimulus package. Last week in Wisconsin, I was with Dave Obie, a long time, 42 years in Congress, and at the time, the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. And Dave said, and I've corroborated this, uh, that the first thing he did as the guy who was going to put together the package called in his counterpart, Jerry Lewis, the ranking Republican on the committee, and said, Jerry... The economy's flat on its back. We need to do a stimulus. We want to work with you. Now, I'd like you to go back to your leaders and your rank and file and just tell me what things would you absolutely want to see in this package and what are non-starters for you. And we'll work something out and accommodate you. And Jerry laughed and said, pointed up and said, Dave, I've got orders from headquarters. We're not going to cooperate. Now, of course, the story was they steamrolled over us, they didn't even consult with us, but that was a ruthlessly pragmatic decision, just as Mitch McConnell's decision to use filibusters, even on issues or nominations that ultimately were going to pass unanimously as a weapon of mass obstruction to block action, to keep the floor filled with things so that they couldn't act, and the decision to make sure that there wasn't a single vote for the Affordable Care Act, or any of the other things that move forward, uh, we know what Mitch said after that strategy in the midterm elections worked, which was what he said almost verbatim, not quite word for word, to Politico after the midterm uh, contest where Republicans won more seats in the House than they had since 1930 and uh, won seats in the Senate, won a lot of state houses, he said, well, of course we weren't going to work with them. Because if we had, all of those policies would have looked bipartisan and people liked them and they would have benefited from it. So that would have damaged the Republican brand, he said. Now, that worked in those midterms. But the cost accumulated in a very considerable way. And for Republicans, the cost accumulated for another reason. The young guns did a book, actually, uh, right in, uh, as Obama came in. The cover is right out of the poster for the movie Young Guns with Kevin Costner. And it was Ryan, uh, McCarthy, and Cantor, a new generation of leaders. And they went out around the country to recruit Tea Party candidates for that midterm contest and said, run on the debt ceiling. Tell people you're drawing the line in the dust. We are not going to increase the debt. And if we win a majority, we're going to bring Barack Obama to his knees. And we will get him to repeal Obamacare, and we will repeal Dodd-Frank, and we'll blow up government as we know it, because we have the debt ceiling, and we'll use it as a hostage, and we'll force him 
to accede to a lot of our demands. And they said, we're going to show you that we mean business. If we win a majority, first thing we're going to do is a $100 billion cut in government immediately as a down payment. Well, they came in, and the first meeting they have, Paul Ryan, the budget guru, goes in front of the new members and says, you know that $100 billion? Well, you know, the fiscal year actually started October 1, and here we are, it's already January, and now we've got to do the individual budget and the appropriations, and that's, by the time, well, it's $35 billion, but that's prorated. It actually is $100 billion, but, and they looked and said, that's Washington speak. And then, of course, the debt ceiling gambit failed. They didn't eliminate a single agency, small or large, they didn't repeal any program. John Boehner, the speaker, uh, coming in said, don't judge us by the laws we pass, judge us by the number that we repeal, and they didn't repeal any. And then the mantra became, you know, he's going to be a one-term president. The scales have been removed from the eyes of the American people, the Kenyan socialist is gone, and the election in 2008 with a surge in turnout of minorities was an anomaly, it's the real electorate of 2010. And, of course, Mitt Romney believed that right up until Election Eve. And then Obama wins handily. Then the mantra was, you know, we're outnumbered two to one. They've got the Senate. They've got the White House. If we can come back in the next midterm and win, we'd outnumber them two to one. And we can repeal Obamacare and uh, Dodd-Frank and bring him to his knees. And they won the Senate, and nothing happened. And actually, Obama using executive power, became even stronger. So you look at all of that, and is it any wonder that first, Eric Cantor, one young gun, bumped off at, uh, in a primary uh, in uh, Richmond by an underfunded, unknown Tea Party candidate, that Kevin McCarthy, after John Boehner, was forced out of the speakership, and was the uh, odds-on favorite and the designated choice to move up, was blocked from doing so. And now Paul Ryan is the third young gun in the OK Corral. And uh, out in Wisconsin, uh, well, the primary debate was going on, uh, Donald Trump, uh, just outside of his home of Janesville, said to his rally, so what do you think of your Paul Ryan? And there was a chorus of boos, and somebody yelled out, Paul Rhino. Now, if Paul Ryan, who is by a very substantial margin the most conservative speaker in the history of Congress, is a Republican in name only, that tells you how much we've polarized, but it also tells you that once you move into a position of leadership, you are by definition an establishment figure, and all they do is lie to you. Now, throw into that mix another element of the angry populism. I mentioned the nativism, the protectionism, the isolationism. When Ross Perot ran, he managed to bring a couple of those things together in one neat phrase, that giant sucking sound of jobs going to Mexico, right? Well, now we have a nativism that is far more dramatic, that has been triggered not just by uh, terrorism and uh, the uh, immigration issue, which has festered for a very long period of time, 
but by another stark reality that was reflected in the fact that the 2012 electorate was not uh, the one that uh, Republicans expected, but rather the one that we see emerging in the future and that midterm elections are very different in turnout than presidential ones. It's a reality that the country is becoming minority, uh, majority by 2% every single year. And it's not going to happen for a couple uh, of decades, but we're moving inexorably in that direction. And for a large share of people, especially for working class white voters who are stuck in a stagnant economy in many cases, but add to it that sense that their position of primacy in the country is slipping away, and a populist appeal focused on rank nativism really resonates even more. If you look at Donald Trump's emergence, when he first decided to run, it was a bit of a curiosity. And we have a dozen candidates out there, and he's one of a pack. And then his marketing genius worked for him because he figured if he got to the right of everybody else in the most bombastic fashion on immigration, Mexican rapists coming in over the border, and we're going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it, and we're going to get rid of all of those illegals who are here right away. It'll be the first thing I do as president. And that suddenly made him emerge in the way that he did. Marco Rubio, who first, when he came to the Senate, believed that by crafting a bipartisan comprehensive immigration bill, it would be his ticket as a conservative who could govern to move forward, ran as far away from his bill as he could possibly get, actually made sure it was undermined in the House because if it got enacted, he'd be stuck with that for a long time. And a candidate like Jeb Bush, who tried to be reasonable on that issue, uh, couldn't even survive uh, through uh, uh, the first significant stage of uh, primaries. Now, we also see isolationism on the part of Trump, NATO, forget that, make them pay for it, but we don't need it uh, anyhow. And, of course, we see protectionism on the left and on the right uh, with uh, Sanders, uh, but also with Trump basically saying all of these deals have been made by a bunch of idiots and you can forget about that. And we will just use trade. We will tell Mexico and China, we're not going to trade with you. And boy, that'll make them suffer as if it wouldn't have any effects on us. But those things now resonate. Now, the anger at the establishment isn't simply on the Republican side. One of the things that happens when you have a two-term president is, first, how do you get to be a two-term president? The single most significant factor in whether a president wins re-election or doesn't is, does he have a challenge to his own renomination from his party's base. Look at the ones who've lost. Now, Gerald Ford uh, was not running for re-election technically, but in actuality he was. Ronald Reagan blew up his chances of uh, winning an election. Uh, look at George Herbert Walker Bush. Pat Buchanan re-emerged uh, and uh, at the convention basically blew up Bush's chances of winning. Jimmy Carter was destroyed by Ted Kennedy. All the successful ones didn't have that challenge because they fend off the base, effectively saying, cut me a little slack, I've got to run for re-election. When they win, the base then believes it's their turn. 
but presidents who are successful, one, understand that in our political system, you make compromises, you horse trade, and two, after you win re-election, no president in a second term has as many members of Congress as he has when he first came in, in his own party. And over time, your power begins to erode a little bit because people are looking to the next person coming in. So why cut deals where you're making compromises, uh, where it may hurt you, when the next person may want to do something completely uh, different? And the base gets restless and unhappy. You put the populism together with that, and again, you see the rise of Sanders, who's tried to walk a very careful line of criticizing Obama for not doing what he could have done and not being pure enough, and he could have gotten a single-payer system, and he could have really hit those banks and so on, but also not moving too far because this is now a very popular president. And, of course, one of the main reasons that Barack Obama's at 53% right now is people are looking at the alternatives out there, and he looks a whole <laughs> lot better. Uh, uh, now, all of that means that the tribalism, which I should note, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, is uh, uh, really deeply sectarian in nature, has given us an odd anomaly. Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. He's never been a Democrat. The last time he ran for re-election in Vermont, the Democratic Party in Vermont, seeing how popular he was, said, well, let's, we'll put you on our ticket too. He said no. He didn't want to be on the Democratic ticket. Donald Trump is, has been a Republican for about as long as he's had his third wife. Uh, and he's, had, he's, he's shed party identification as often as he's shed uh, wives. Uh, and of course, Ted Cruz's calling card is calling his own party leader in the Senate a liar something he doubled down on just the day before yesterday. So it's a weird process that we have. Uh, now, I can give you just a few comments on where we're likely to go from here. Hillary Clinton is going to win the Democratic nomination and win it fairly handily. Uh, but she's going to have to contend with a group of angry people, more young than not, uh, who basically believe that uh, their values have been sold out in this political process. Uh, and uh, she can probably do that a little bit more easily because Democrats haven't eliminated any of their leaders, haven't taken on their leadership in the same way. And if you look at the level of vitriol in the campaign, high as it is, it's no higher than it was when Hillary Clinton uh, was up against Barack Obama in 2008. The Republican Party faces an existential crisis right now. It has no place to go. And the choice that it faces is an extremely difficult one. Uh, I think it is more likely than not that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee. And that's not saying, well, he needs to get 1,237 delegates by June the 7th, the last day of the primaries. If Donald Trump has 1,150 delegates when uh, the morning comes on June the 8th. Denying him the nomination really does ensure that Cleveland will make Chicago 1968 look uh, mild by comparison. And he will either run in a number of states as an independent, which he will be able to do, or he will go around the country saying, time to blow up the Republican Party, look at what they did to us. And that will have an impact all the way up and down the line. And my guess is enough 
establishment or pragmatic figures are going to look at this and say our best chance here is to swallow hard, say the people have spoken because we've told them all along that's how we choose our nominees, let them have the nomination, and then go to our friends, the Koch brothers and their allies who have $900 million in a war chest and get them to use that money and their most sophisticated voter identification operation, which is they've already set up, to identify the Republicans out there and say to them, our last line of defense is the House and Senate. You've got to turn out and vote and do that. So that's, I think, uh, the most likely outcome. The second outcome is that Ted Cruz wins a nomination on the second or third ballot, which is better in one sense, better in the sense that if we're looking at how you pick up the pieces in a Republican Party, choosing somebody who is like Barry Goldwater, whose mythology is if only we picked a real conservative, all of those voters who have been staying at home will turn out, the silent majority will bring us in. If you can shatter that, maybe you can move back to a conservative problem-solving party a little bit down the road. Uh, But no outcome is a particularly good one. Now, I want to end that part of the program by saying that doesn't mean that it is an absolute sure thing. The presidential contest is over. Many things can happen between now and November. And the tribal identity is still high enough that we're not going to have an election where uh, a party wins 49 states as the Republicans did running against, Barry, uh, against uh, George McGovern in 1972 uh, uh, or uh, against Walter Mondale in 1984, or 45 states as the Democrats won uh, against Barry Goldwater. There are too many states that are firmly red and firmly blue. And imagine if we have a, a Paris or a Brussels or both sometime in the fall. The appeal of a strong man uh, may be significant. But most likely we're going to end up with a Democratic president and very likely a narrow Democratic majority in the Senate, Republican majority in the House. In two years, more than likely the Republicans regain the Senate because there are more than twice as many Democrats up the next time in midterm contests, older, mailer, whiter electorates. That means we have divided government. Divided government in a tribal era is not a good formula uh, for the future. And the biggest challenge we have is this partisan tribalism, which has metastasized to a lot of states and out to the country as a whole. We now live in a world where the polls tell us that more Americans would be unhappy if a child of theirs married somebody from another party than if the child married somebody from another religion or another race, which you could argue is progress. But it has a serious downside to it. But take that and then layer in the other reality, that where the Republicans have been going with the immigration issue and the rhetoric is to drive out all minorities and become a party of angry white people. Now, over the long run, that's a bad formula. But even in the short run, it's not good. And for Democrats who've been losing support uh, among whites, and are becoming a party of minorities, if you layer race, which is always difficult and combustible, on top of partisan tribalism, that is not a formula for uh, American unity. There is nothing written in stone that says that our democracy, which has functioned so well, even through crises as serious as the Civil War and others, will go on forever. 
And it is incumbent upon all of us in an age where the uh, culture has been coarsened, where the worst epithets, racial and otherwise, are now acceptable in uh, any company, where a Ted Nugent can call the President of the United States a subhuman mongrel, uh, or a half-breed mongrel, I should say, is the term that was used, uh, and get away with it. Um, we have to try and uh, bring back some sense of shame when the uh, dialogue goes beyond bounds and do whatever we can to bring some changes in the system so that people who are problem solvers, whatever their ideology may be, and we're not going to have a moderate Republican Party, the Eisenhower era, even the Reagan era, are gone. It's going to be a very conservative party. It's going to be a Robert Taft kind of party. But if it's not a problem-solving party that's willing to find ways to work with the other side to deal with some of the major issues we face, complicated ones, from climate change to uh, coping with the global economy to infrastructure uh, to coping with terrorism, uh, then uh, we're not going to leave much for our children or grandchildren down the road.